Um, Rob Ricks had been at GitHub for a while and I, I didn't know him, but he kind of went up on stage in front of all the software engineers at the company and you know, wanted to pitch this idea that we should be doing parsing of the code on GitHub and try to build kind of productivity features that, that made use of the parse tree. And so I, I sort of, after that, he gave that talk, I had to just go and find him and, and say, hey, you know, you, I really think we should do that too. Machines are so fast and stores are so big that they give us plenty of latitude to screw things up. The shell, or which is the name we give to the command interpreter. So the operator got a pair of tweezers and very carefully fished the moth out of the relay. Because you all read the mythical man month. And the best motivator in the world for programming is, is scratching your niche. Developers, 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 developers. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Sourcecraft Podcast. My name is Biang, and on this show we talk with the people behind amazing dev tools and developer experience. Open source authors, maintainers, DevX engineers inside forward-thinking companies, developer advocates and educators, founders of dev tool companies, anyone and everyone who brings joy and delight into our lives as programmers. We talk about their work, we talk about their lives, we talk about their vision of what lies ahead for the world of code. Stay tuned. All right, welcome back, everyone, to another edition of the Sourcecraft Podcast. Today, I'm talking with Max Brunsfield. Max was one of the core contributors to Atom, the hackable web editor that pioneered the use of Electron for desktop applications. He is also the creator of TreeSitter, the modern parser generator tool that powers syntax highlighting in an increasing number of editors and is also used for code navigation on GitHub. He's now working on something new, a project and company called Zed, which is trying to bring uh, real-time collaboration into the editor, taking lessons learned over many years working on editors and developer tools. Max, welcome to the show. Thanks, Pion. I appreciate you inviting me on. Awesome. So we like to kick things off uh, around here by asking people, how did they get into this world of computers? So Max, how, how did you get into programming? Yeah, it took me uh, a long time. I, growing up, I um, wanted to be an artist of some sort. My, my father is an artist, and um, both my parents are, really. And I um, thought I wanted to be some kind of realistic illustrator or jazz musician. Um, we were all kind of in the technical uh, sphere of the arts, but I didn't really think of it that way at the time. Um, <laughs> and so when I went to college, I started out studying art and music, and... I did kind of know that I hadn't yet found the right path. I hadn't found something that I was really good at and that was going to be a reliable way for me to take care of myself. Um, and I was lucky that I went to uh, a small college that wasn't where most of the majors weren't super uh, competitive to get into and it wasn't super elite or, or very expensive. So I was kind of able to just keep changing my major until I figured out uh, what I wanted to do. And I, so every semester or two, I kept on changing what I was studying. And eventually I ended up taking a calculus course. And it was when I took that class that I kind of realized, um, I had like always just identified as an artist, not really thought of myself as a super scientific person. Um, but when I got into that class, um, it just, Something about the, it was like the first time I had learned a new technical set of ideas as an adult. And there was like these, you know, these three things, the 
derivative and the infinite series <laughs> and the integral. And it, it all made so much sense. And I just remember thinking like, like, wow, this, this is what scientists, um, kind of like <laughs> the stuff that they do all day. Like you, there's, they sort of build these theories that make sense. And I was just like, I, um, it felt incredible. And I was like, oh, and I am like, I get this. Uh, I'm, I'm actually good at this. So it was like, I had finally, I, I couldn't believe that I didn't realize before that engineering and science were so cool. Um, and so, um, and that was like a couple of years into college, but I, and so I, I took, um, for a couple of years, uh, a combination of classes in environmental engineering and physics. And I eventually got my degree in, uh, in physics and, um, so by the end of college, I had done at least some programming because in engineering school, they, we had these numerical analysis classes where they were, it was very old school though. The professor would write on the blackboard, the Fortran program and like prove <laughs> that it was solved wow. the math problem correctly. And we would, you know, we would, we would, um, email the computer programs that we wrote as our homework to our professor and he would like, print them out and in a red pen uh, wow. uh, underline the bugs. And it was, <laughs> so it was like so different from, you know, what I think of programming is now with all the tools and the, the methods. Um, and I did realize when in college that I liked that, but I still didn't when going through all that, didn't think of myself like, Oh, I'm going to be a programmer now. It was just something that felt um, easy and that, you know, unlike doing lab work or having to like procure materials to build something you could just do, it was kind of limitless what you could build. And I, I really appreciated that about it. Um, but I still didn't say to myself, Oh, I'm going to be a programmer. Um, and what it finally took to me to get there was, was really meeting the right person, a friend who was passionate about programming and who could, um, kind of, I could talk about it with in a way that made sense to me. And so, hmm. um, luckily I, my girlfriend at the time, uh, who I'm now married to her brother is, was, is a software engineer, um, Nathan Sobo. And he, um, I met him during, um, we hung out in my, during my senior year of college and he had already been uh, working as a software engineer for a few years. And he had this, he had quit his job to work on a side project that um, was kind of a passion of his. It's won't get into too much what it is, but it was this like it ha it had this mathematical component to it because it was it had to do with um, voting. It was there was like this election algorithms that were involved in this product that he was building. It was trying to he had this idea for like exploring these new ways of like collective decision making with. Um, voting online and and he was basically taking time off to explore this idea and he when we were hanging out he said to me oh max you um you do physics you're kind of into like reading like mathematical stuff like maybe you would be interested in kind of re researching with me this literature that exists about election theory and different different algorithms for computing election results hmm. and we could we could code together um and it was so funny because at the time I was like figuring out what I was going to do after college. And I, I was like thinking about applying to material science grad school or things like that. And so I almost had this reaction of like, Oh no, I, I, I don't have time to do this. I need to figure out what I want to do with my life. <laughs> and at a certain, and luckily I, I stopped and was like, Oh, well maybe this will help me figure out what I want to do. And, and so I, I, um, 
he shared with me a GitHub repository, which was like, it was a new thing to me at the time. This was 2011, I think. Um, yeah. I was in my, in college still. And, um, so I began to uh, read about these election algorithms and, um, he, he was developing an application that implemented these in Ruby at the time. And so I was looking up how to program in Ruby and to kind of adapt these algorithms into uh, Ruby code. And we eventually, we talked more and he said, oh, wow, you're really engaging with this. Okay, well, you know, maybe you and I should code together and I should come and visit you. And I think, and I lived in, in Humboldt, California at the time and he, he lived in San Francisco and he came and visited me. And we, um, I remember we, we pair programmed. That was something that he was really into at the time. And I had never uh, heard of it, but he like, brought he had this uh he like set it all up we had the two displays um and oh, two wow. keyboards all this equipment and like um and we sat down and we coded and we ended up spending all this time pair programming together and for me like my experience programming had been um like i said in the engineering department at school with using very primitive tools i was using vi like the engineering <laughs> lab teachers taught us to use vi not vim but vi uh, nice. in the terminal and <laughs> and so nathan was like we were coding ruby he had this rails app there was javascript there was long polling there was like postgres just all this stuff and he was yeah. using git and he, um, I was sitting next to him and kind of taking it all in through this pair programming process. And, um, and I remember like, I was just learning so much with all these technologies and tools for programming that I hadn't been exposed to. And, um, we would, we would take turns typing mostly he would type and I would just be taking it all in cause there was so much. Um, but I would yeah. type and I remember one thing that he would do would be like, I would we'd decide to make some kind of change and, and I would start typing and he'd be like, wait a second. No, no, no. Just undo, undo all that. You just type like, I want to show you what you can use the tool to make that happen. And like, he'd be like, hit alt F six. And first we'll rename this function and then we'll extract <laughs> this part into another function. Also using some other command. We were using, um, Ruby mine at the time, the yeah. Ruby IDE by JetBrains, And there were all these like, kind of moves that he taught me to do that was like not just the programming knowledge itself but like the tactics of how you physically get the code into the files um yep and something about that at the time like i had learned i was learning all this kind of stuff about building applications but then also learning that there was just these amazing tools that you use as a programmer and that it was this craft almost like i don't know like a trade like a where you yeah. have to learn this rich set of tools um it was almost like an apprenticeship experience for me um like a classic like learning i don't know being a carpenter or something but for mm. code and something about that like the experience of like learning to like code effectively with these tools um that was just amazing to me when i can't it just made me come to think of programming in a whole new light as this thing that you could, it was like this skill that you could hone, not only in your understanding of software, but your ability to like create software effectively and, you know, efficient way that wasn't error prone. Yeah. And that was just mind blowing to me. That was the point where I was like, Oh, okay. Um, I'm going to be a programmer <laughs> or a software engineer or whatever you call it. Like, yeah. Um, and, and so that was during my, my, um, 
last year of college, and that was when I decided, you know, I'm not going to apply to, you know, engineering grad schools. Um, I'm, I'm just, I'm going to do this. Uh, um, and then the funny thing is, um, that w- so that it's like, it's hard to explain what this actual application was that we were building on. It was, like <laughs> I said, it had to do with like voting and democracy. It was a little kind of... Was it, it was like for a, like a, a voting system that people were going to use to devote, or was it more of like a research project? Like it was you more researchy, I would okay. say. It was like an app to explore these ideas. And but Nathan had earlier in the year, Nathan had said, "You know, I'm I'm applying. Um, I want you to apply this thing with me in case we decide to keep working together." It's this thing called Y Combinator, and I'm going to see if they want to fund me to do huh. this. And at the time, I was like, "Okay, I don't know what Y Combinator is, but I'll do, do this application <laughs> with you." And then the, we, um, we, we had all this time coding together um, that I described. And then we, do, we got asked to come speak to them at Y Combinator for this, this idea that I have no idea how to explain how it would ever be a business. Um, <laughs> but like, you know, Y Combinator does that. They like yeah. mold your idea into a business or whatever. So we, it was like right after college, I was still feeling this total shock of like, you know, going from an engineering school to like, you know, start up like coding <laughs> yep. and we go to Y Combinator and um, we like, you know, wait with all the other te- teams. I mean, as you know, um, um, we and got invited into this room to talk to Paul about it. And it was like, it was pretty that once we got in the room, like it was pretty quickly, it was kind of a shit show trying to explain how this thing was going to be a business. <laughs> they weren't really like loving it, our explanation. Um, uh, but that's a really like uh, uh, like short meeting too, right? It's like uh, 10 or 15 minutes. That you it have. Is. I remember <laughs> it being very short. Yeah. And like, what, I think when I knew it was going badly was when it just like turned all into like a tech. We were, they started asking about like, oh, wow, that's working in real time. Like, how did you make that happen? And so like, it was kind of like the... At that point, it was clear that there was no not much business like potential mm-hmm. there, or uh, yeah, or it was at least going to be a difficult road to try to turn that into a business. But like the the tech side of it was really interesting yeah, yeah. Uh, to them. So we got sidetracked onto that, and then like we pretty soon got a letter that said, "Hi guys, like really cool tech that you're building, but uh, we don't see how we're going to make that into a, mm-hmm. a business." Uh, but that was just a really um, early, um, interesting, trippy experience for me coming out of. <laughs> uh, college. That's awesome. So wh- where did it go from there? You know, what was the path from, from that to work at GitHub? Yeah. So, um, we spent a few months. So I, I, um, after college, uh, I, I didn't know what I was going to do. All I knew when it was that I wanted to code with Nathan on his project for a while. And he had money. He was taking time off. So he was like, I'll, I'll give you some money so you can eat. Um, you can come, yeah. <laughs> just code with me. I like <laughs> moved into back into my room at my parents' house and like was just in, he was like borrowing a desk from his old employer at Pivotal Labs. Um, the um, founder of Pivotal Robs was just kind enough to let Nathan and I like have a desk there and work on his thing. Um, and so that I, I was there, I was coding with Nathan all summer. And then we, we sort of at a certain point decided to call it like, okay, we need to go get jobs now. And so, um, I applied to Pivotal and uh, interviewed there and started working there after this. Um, And like the cool thing about working at Pivotal was Pivotal is like a um, consulting shop that they have this very specific service that they provided, which was if you wanted software built 
quickly and you wanted them to teach kind of your own engineers how to build the software. They had this integrated um, pair programming based practice for making that happen and for and we would handle hiring for people like it was sort of what selling point was that pivotal knows how to hire effectively and bring people on and so it was like this sort of complete service for um kicking off a project and then staffing up the team on it and so it was um very focused on pair programming all the time and rotating new people onto the project constantly and so after having had this summer where i kind of had this crazy crash course in all the like practices of programming and how to do it effectively. Like it was sort of an opportunity to go, go mix with all these people um, in a really rapid way um, and learn and like do my kind of immediately start teaching other people the skills that I knew about how to code effectively. Um, And I remember pivotal, it was like, there was a lot of the projects at pivotal had a common approach. We were doing a lot of rails apps um, with certain uh, kinds of JavaScript that we would do. Um, we'd do iPhone apps in Objective-C. Okay. Um, and so we would use the IDEs for those languages, um, like I had learned, like the, the JetBrains suite of yeah. IDEs. And so there were all these cool things you could do to code effectively. And so all these pivots knew this, uh, all these tricks to basically make, you know, get code fast um, and, yeah. you know, make changes fast. And so I was picking those up. But then there was a certain class of projects at Pivotal where, like, the IDEs, um, there were, like, code bases too large to be opened in IDEs or code bases mm-hmm. in different languages. And so there was, yeah. like, other other pivots who would, like, had all this deep expertise in Vim and using all these, like, kind of lower-level tools uh, for, for coding. Um, Interesting. So they would use Vim on the larger code bases because, like, you try to open it up in the IDE and it would like slow to a crawl or something like that. Yeah, at that time, RubyMine couldn't open. I don't know what would happen, but you couldn't really open some of these client code bases in huh. the IDEs, and so you had to. There, there's this whole other like kind of parallel knowledge base at Pivotal of like people who knew how to do crazy Vim, like there was like all dark this art of Vim, and <laughs> right. <laughs> Uh, and so I learned all of that as well. And with that was cool for me because I was um, interested in learning other programming languages too. I had learned a few mm-hmm. on the job, um, but I was int- at the time I was interested in like Clojure and Haskell and learning functional languages. And th- there weren't the IDEs for those. And so I, yeah. I was really happy to be learning how to use these other tools like Vim. But... At the, while learning those, I remember always it was so much work to like customize them and make them like usable, adding modern features to them, and also to learn all the commands that you needed to know to like change inside brackets and all these commands that people use in Vim to like edit uh, pieces of text. Um, yeah, and um, it's it's funny like um, Nathan and I um, had had these all these conversations about like while working on this side project about like something else that Nathan was really interested in was like, he was like, one day I want to build my own code editor. That's going to be like better than all these code editors. Um, and one thing about it, it's going to do like, it's going to be like the IDEs with all these syntax aware commands. Uh, but there's going to be incremental parsing so that it's fast. It's not slow like these IDEs. Um, and it was kind of like a short, like that was the extent of it. What I like, um, took away from those conversations. But I remember that putting this idea into my head about, Oh, like 
incremental parsing, that's, that makes sense that, that we'd, you'd want to do that. But like, that isn't a salt or, um, it was kind of like, and then I could see once I switched to using Vim, I could understand like, oh, Vim doesn't really do like syntax analysis. It just, there's this really kind of rough, um, syntax highlighting. And then the rest is like, all the, all this power of Vim is based on text processing, not really like code processing. And so it made sense to me then once I switched to back from using IDEs to using uh, yep. Vim. Yep. And so I put this idea in my head, like, huh, there's just this unsolved problem that we all like don't have a solution to, which is like having idea of having a fast editor that also has the same syntax awareness yep. as the JetBrains ones have. Uh, and it, that was really interesting to me. Like it's, I kind of, it was my first realization that like, Oh yeah, this, these tools that we all use as programmers, like they're changing all the time. And, like you can yeah. just make your up your own stuff, um, and so yeah, I guess at the time, like a couple of years into working at Pivotal, I, I guess I was looking for something like hard to work on, or just something different than like the app development uh, cycle that I, I was in. Yep, and I yep. still had that thought about oh, incremental parsing, like is that a thing? And so I, I started um, kind of in on the side, well. Um, Mostly on in the mornings when taking the bus from Oakland to San Francisco, I would sort of do my research about <laughs> about this idea, like w- what would it take to make that happen? And and I um, had this vision from early on about it, where I, I wanted to. Um, I really admired these certain software projects where where like it seemed like they were solving like a dense, hard problem like that, and like oh, yeah. um, kind of making it into like it sort of fade away. Like once it had been solved by this library, like you just didn't even have to wor- think, worry about it anymore. Like, uh, like SQL light was kind of like the number one thing <laughs> like that to me. Like there's this C library that like, all, if you wanted like a managed structured data, like you just, you just use a SQL light and it yep. completely solved the problem. It was non problem anymore. And it was yeah. this really gnarly thing that it solved. And like other things like that, like libgit two was a similar thing where it's like, Oh, yep. You want to do Git stuff? Just use libgit too, and you can do it from any language because there's bindings to the C library. And so, yeah. I kind of had it in my mind that, like, okay, well, I should figure out how parsing works because I don't know that because I never went to computer science school. And then that once I do that, which <laughs> then I have to find out how you do incremental parsing. But um, there seems to be papers about it. I don't understand them yet, but I'll I'll read those once I understand parsing, and then. Uh, if you could just do it as a C library, then it would be like solved <laughs> yeah. and um, you could put it in an editor like Vim was kind of like my, like the end game at the time was like, yeah. well, if it's a C library, you could even use it in Vim uh, or in any editor. You could like portably solve it. Um, yeah. And so that was like this long-term plan, uh, but I, I had to start from like, um, just what, how does parsing work? Like what, <laughs> what are the like basics there? And, and so I kind of worked backward from tr- trying to like read what, what, um, academic papers existed in the computer science literature about incremental parsing. And they were all kind of uh, older, like from the 90, 92 or something like that. And this was yeah. 2012 that I was starting on this, I think. And so they're a bit older, but they all, I was kind of wanted to, I didn't understand them yet, but I wanted to scan them and find out like what were the things that they built upon 
so I could go learn that and then come back to them. And so I think I, I found out that all the, the incremental parsing work that was like proven and researched was based on LR parsing. And so I thought, oh, that's what I, I know that's what um, Yak and Bison use. So I should go learn how that yeah. works. Um, Yak and Pice, uh, Bison are, are uh, parser generators, right? Like Yeah, you, like the old you, school Unix one, yes. Unix parser generators. Um, and so um, I kind of read, read up on those, mostly using like um, my go-to was just the Wikipedia pages about them. And then also and tr- trying to just take what I did understand out of that, which is like a subset and implement it and then see like what didn't work. And then that was what cued me that I needed to understand like the rest of the article, uh, or, yeah. you know, like kind of gradually filled it in with a broken implementation. And you know, I, I love this. I just want to say, I love this because the two things, like one, you're teaching yourself all these sort of things that are like kind of the fundamentals part of computer science, which I, I feel like there's this perception out there that like, that's the thing you still have to go to, you know, a four year computer science degree to, to get right. But here you are just like learning all this stuff uh, with the power of Wikipedia and in the internet on your own. And then two, it's almost like you you chose to tackle this problem that I feel like a lot of people uh, I've spoken to who've been through, you know, four year uh, CS program are like, oh, no, that would be too hard. Like, you know, th- if it hasn't been done by now, there's a reason it hasn't been done. Like parsing is hard. Compilers uh, are hard. But it's almost like, you know, you with your fresh eyes, you're like, well, why not? You know, like I have this problem and it seems like this is a viable path and and why not go down this rabbit hole? Well, I might not have done it if I hadn't. There wasn't at least some paper that said like, so this guy, Tim Wagner, like proved it, his algorithm correct. And just um, so that was what like it wasn't wasn't like I was like completely like, uh, you know, walking in being like, oh, I could figure that or, you know, this uh you know, I can prove that this is possible. I didn't know it was possible because, like, someone had in academia had like proven it or yep, supposedly yep. proven. It. I didn't, un- you know, understand the proof at that time. But like, but they just had never. They like graduated from their PhD and then they like went and did other <laughs> things. Um, yep. And yep. so I was like, oh, okay. Well, all someone needs to do then just is just like implement what they said and kind of turn it into more of like a modern library type of thing instead of being this like yeah. sort of complex interfaced C++ project, like just turn it into like right. a simple right. interface thing and then you'll be good. And so, uh, so yeah, like uh, that, that was what gave me the confidence to, to approach it was like, okay, it's been proven, but hasn't been implemented. So all <laughs> I got to do is like popularize it. Yeah. So, um, you had this idea in the back of your mind and was this what prompted you to go to GitHub or was this something that you kind of carried with you uh, when you joined GitHub and later came to fruition? I worked on it for quite a while before I moved to GitHub, but what did happen was, um, Nathan, um, who I'd been working with and who I talked about earlier, like did he, um, move to GitHub and he was basically a founding member of the Atom team at GitHub and kind of was working on that for a while. And so I knew that um, he, I knew he told me how he was, had always wanted to build a text editor. And so I knew he had gone off and, and done that. And I knew that they, <laughs> with Adam, they were sort of taking this, they had this specific goal of making the hackable text editor based on web technologies. Um, 
But I stayed working at Pivotal for a while and just kept on working on on, on TreeSitter on the side. Uh, but I think one thing that, that eventually prompted me to... Um, to quit there and, and start working GitHub. Well, there was a couple things. There was um, one was that like I saw it like they they kind of let me beta test Atom, and um, I remember trying it at the time and going through. They had this like Atom was really rough, but what they did really figure out early on was like how you would write packages for it. It was like mm-hmm. almost like it wasn't yet that good of an editor by itself, but the experience of like making a package was super smooth. Like you could like run the tests with this built in command in the yep. editor. Um, and there was like already stub files for like how you would do your CSS and stuff. It was like all yep. set up for you. And, um, and so I thought that was really cool. So I, as soon as I got that, that beta came out and I would, I got on the list for it. I, said, okay, now like I'll take how tree sitter in whatever its current state is and I'll do a Node.js binding for it because I because that was um, Adam used Electron and so Node.js was kind of their like package ecosystem that they were drawing from. And yeah. then I'll hook it up and I'll see that'll be my way, my first way that I can actually like run tree sitter live while editing and see how it works. And like so I I built a simple package that all, all you could do was you could, um, it, it implemented the extend selection command from JetBrains editors where you, you can hit like alt up or something and your selection grows to grab the next syntax tree I node see. in your source file. Um, so that was really exciting to me. And then I kind of put that to the side. Um, uh, but then another thing that happened is we uh, start, we were expecting our first kid and the lifestyle, like up until then, like the pivotal labs lifestyle where you, it's full, you're in person all the time, no remote. Um, and it's like same, everybody used the same schedule nine to six and you were in person pairing the whole time. Yep. And I love that. It was, it's a really fun way to work, but it, all of a sudden I started like kind of not wanting to do that. Like I wanted to be mm-hmm. home and able to like help out with things. And I was yeah, kind of yeah, yeah. seeing that coming. Uh, even though we didn't, the kid wasn't born yet. And so it was like all of a sudden I realized, because I was seeing all the benefits of pairing all the time at Pivotal, but I wasn't really until then experiencing why like you might want a different um, workflow. Mm-hmm. Um, and so all of a sudden I understood that and I wanted that. And then at the same time, this stuff with Adam was happening. And so that was when I applied to work at GitHub. Um, and ended up joining that team. Um, and that was like, and you know, like I said, one of the reasons was to have this different working schedule and it, and it was, it it was such a big change coming from working at Pivotal where you're like literally talking out loud all the time to people to GitHub where I would, I would some occasionally go commute to San Francisco from Oakland Mm -hmm. still and go into the office. But even once I got out of the office, it was still just everyone, kind of working in their own corner of the GitHub office, GitHub at the time, like the office <laughs> quietly was like typing all, away, all bars and coffee shops. And it was, everyone was just picking their corner, typing away. Um, nice. And I remember being so, um, just unfamiliar with that at first. Uh, but what I loved about it was like the independence that you kind of could work with. Um, at the, at the time when I joined Adam team was like, 
it was pretty small and everyone on it was pretty experienced developer at that point. So everyone kind of, it was very much like everyone had their branch. It was kind of this infrequent code review. Yeah. People worked on whatever they thought was important to at that time. It was just super um, independent and Mm -hmm. self self self-structured. And, um, and I remember loving the, PR review process at, at first. I hadn't really engaged in it much before because I, when pairing all the time, there isn't as much of a need for doing code review. Um, but on the yep. Atom team, we would, um, you know, there were even already all these Atom fans on the internet who were following all the pull requests. And so, like, you kind of had this audience to write for anytime you made a code change, you'd have to write up this really nice technical description of it. And uh, and I remember loving that at the time and thinking, oh, wow, this is so different from pairing where I just casually say everything. Like I, now you like, it's like technical writing is a part of your job and you have to describe everything. So, um, in, in this batched way. Um, so that was really cool. And then, but then, um, what changed though about that was that we, we hired more people, the Adam team grew, um, and so we had a little bit more of a mix of people with different coding experience levels on the team. Um, and then also really importantly, um, uh, Antonio joined our team. Antonio is, um, he and I and Nathan are, are now founding this new company together and we've been working ever since this time. And Antonio at the time he joined, um, he, he just sort of found the Atom project on GitHub and started contributing these really deep technical improvements to Atom. Uh, but Antonio lives in Italy. And so like there was, there was like no, no way anymore to have like a, like <laughs> very much of a like synchronous yeah, conversation. Time zones. Um, and at the same time, we weren't, we started working on things that were, um, not that way where everyone has their own branch and we're all just sort of working separately and reviewing mm-hmm. each other's code where there was some big hard project. Like we needed to rewrite a certain data structure in C plus plus, um, or we needed to like optimize something. And it, it took Nathan and I and Antonio started not wanting to like just have our own branches and work separately. And, um, review PRs. We, we wanted to work together, but yeah. the, the only flow that we could make that happen with was we would, we would, we kind of have this continuous handoff, um, where like I would leave and I would just type a long, long message in Slack being like, okay, the code is not totally compiling. This part is broken. I just decided to change this day. This here's why it was really, um, yeah, very different to like the PR review workflow. Because oh wow! It so, was, so you would like hand off these things while they're still like work in progress. Like the, they the were same branch. Yeah, we'd all the same branch. We would, we would just continuously wow. be working, and one of us would get up, and by the time the other one of us going going bed, there'd be this short overlap. And the only way, and that's how we work to this day on Zed. Now that's um, crazy. But wait, so like, do you walk the, like the person who's like picking up where you left off, is there any like live conversation at, in the transition point where you're like, here's what I did and blah, blah, blah. And watch out for this. Cause like, this is a big hack. Or is it just yeah. like you write the message and you're like, all right, you know, well. we try. <laughs> yeah. Like, well, on one direction we did have that when, when I was getting up in the morning or Nathan was getting up in the morning, 
Antonio would stay up late enough so that he could speak to us. Um, okay. Because uh, it would be like the late evening for him, not like crazy um, middle yeah, of the night. Yeah. But the other way around, when Antonio was waking up, nobody was there. So we just had to write this um, <laughs> pretty like complete description of our... And we would try to not leave it wow. broken, but we often did. And so we had to just explain everything in Slack and be pasting code into Slack. Um, and so it was... It was like the most effective way we could find to work together, but it was um, still challenging to have to write that way. And and it wasn't, we didn't really use GitHub code reviews for that because it wasn't like, it was all on the same branch and it was like the, just this, what we were having to capture was not like, yeah, complete state. It was this, just where we left off. Yeah. Um, and so... I don't know, that was a point when um, when I realized, huh, none of our collaboration tools are quite um, addressing this this problem right now uh, of right. of this process. Um, but like, yeah, we we um, we made it work. I don't know. Maybe I should uh, fast forward at this point to other other um, <laughs> yeah things. So. That- I- I guess, like, I think a lot of this is is kind of foreshadowing, at least from my point of view, like the eventual creation of the, the company that you all started together, Zed, right? Um, but but before we get there, I just want to uh, finish the you know time at at, at GitHub, and uh, I'm curious as to like how Treesitter got to be incorporated into Atom and different parts of uh, GitHub's uh, architecture, because in the beginning you just made this kind of extension or, or package. For right. it. it was like this toy and it wasn't really uh, doing much uh, like what at what point uh, did it find an application uh, inside github yeah it took a while what, well, fortunately that we had this um, company summit where we all flew to San Diego and we stayed in a like a resort together and there was this um, github how, how big was the company at this point I think there, the to... number of, of software engineers at the company was around 150 or something. So there was okay. a lot of people I didn't know because I'd really only met the Adam team, which was this small yeah, kind of yeah. island. And um, and um, Rob Ricks uh, was a was a GitHub like a had been at GitHub for a while, and he, I, I didn't know him, but he kind of went up on stage in front of all the software engineers at the company and you know, wanted to pitch this idea that we should be doing parsing of the code on GitHub and try to build kind of productivity features that, that made use of the parse tree. And so I, I sort of, after that, he gave that talk, I had to just go and find him and, and say, Hey, you know, you, I really think we should do that too. And I've been working on this, um, parsing framework. It's a little bit, you know, I, my was, my focus was on text editors at the time, but there were yep. a lot of common, there's kind of a lot of common, um, design constraints for for like a text editor and also for github.com because they're both these tools where um, like the we the, the tool creator don't know a ton about the code that the person is like push like using look viewing the tool we just know the file extension yep. Yep. Um, and there's a lot of different languages that we want to be able to plug in and the parsing just needs to be really fast in an editor it's because like your display is updating while you're typing and you need to see that but in, in GitHub, it's just because there's a lot of pushes per second, and so it needs to the parsing yep, needs to be yep. really fast. And so I talked to him, um, and 
and he kind of got set up with TreeSitter, and they were doing they were doing um, code analysis in Haskell, and so they kind of quickly created a TreeSitter binding for Haskell, and they created um, they explored a bunch of ideas, but doing stuff with diffs. Um, mm-hmm. But what eventually shipped was this first version of code navigation in GitHub that was um, it was still simple. It was kind of similar to C tags, uh, where it's yeah. um, not doing a, a semantic analysis of the code, but it's um, just finding functions and finding classes and types and um, and finding call sites to functions and matching them up by their name. Um, it was at least better than C tags in that it could also um, you could find not just the definitions, but lo- but call sites as well. Although newer, yeah. newer versions of C tags, I think, might do that as well. This was back in what, like 2015 or, or something like that. Uh, or yeah, I, I started working GitHub um, end of 2014. I think this might have been yeah 2015 or 2016 that this okay um, they started working on this. Um, and I wasn't I was gonna involved from afar. I would like help them debug yeah. tree sitter stuff and they were working on grammars that made a bunch more grammars for ruby and, and uh, php and python yeah um, but it was kind of separate for me it was it was cool because it was this project that i had put all this like time into and i cared a lot about and it wasn't we weren't really ready to use it on atom yet just because we had a different we had other product features that the team was had prioritized mm-hmm. but but this other team at github was like you know getting used <laughs> that's out of awesome it. so that was that was nice. And then finally, it was almost like um, through helping them with TreeSitter, it helped, and, and them working on grammars, it helped TreeSitter mature enough to where we, um, it got to where that it, it, it could highlight JavaScript and be more reliably than the TextMate grammars that we were using in Atom. Uh, yep. It would, um, you know, it was more efficient. And so once we got to that milestone of like, um, you know, the highlighting is better and it's faster then we, I, we finally, um, incorporated it into Adam. Awesome. Uh, and the thing it was doing in Adam, was that code navigation as well? Or was that more on like the syntax highlighting side? We were just using it for syntax highlighting and code folding. So you could, you could fold functions that weren't necessarily indented in the way that, Adam previously yep. had required them to be. Um, and also that command I mentioned earlier, extend selection. We made that a built-in feature of Adam so you could um, like grow your selection up the syntax tree. And um, for me, that like that was a really... It's funny. It's, it's such this unassuming feature, but it was this feature of the uh, IDEs that I had used to use a long time ago that I had loved so much with... Like you could like put multiple cursors on different codes that you wanted to refactor <laughs> yeah. and like grow them all up the syntax tree. So they would all be like selecting the right thing and then Ooh, do a refactor. That sounds really satisfying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was, I love the feature. It was so, um, you know, it didn't like have a huge bang to it, but I, I just, yeah, I just loved it. <laughs> That's awesome. What, what about TreeSitter as an open source project? Cause now, you know, it's, it's popping up, uh, in a lot of places. I think more and more people are using it inside, um, other editors and, and building on top of it. I know GitHub continues to build on top of it for their uh, code navigation. Um, have you kind of kept up uh, with the with the goings on of, of the project and, and where it's being used? I do. Yeah, I try to. I um, yeah. At, at the time when I was um, 
it was, it's, you know, it's been taken up gradually by more and more. I hear about companies that are paying people to work on grammars and, and parsers and stuff. But yeah. the big one was um, SEMGREP, the um, code kind of, they, they make uh, tools for searching for certain like patterns, yep. and especially like anti-patterns and source code and correcting them. Um, yep. they, they, they switched to using TreeSitter. And then a, one that made me really happy, even though I've kind of moved on from using Vim, was that NeoVim um, incorporated a built-in feature of NeoVim that you could parse your code with TreeSitter. Yeah. Um, and what really, I think, was like the final thing that helped more people find a use for the library was that we built this... What was that Eventually, I left the Atom team while still at GitHub and... and went to work on the code navigation thing uh, full-time. And we um, we built this one more feature in TreeSitter that was about searching for patterns in a syntax tree. And our mm-hmm. goal was to make it so that you could um, have kind of one engine that was like a, uh, like a pattern matching engine in the syntax tree that would both let yep. us do syntax highlighting. By, you know, you'd be able to say there was like a a language that was kind of based on S expressions like Lisp, where you could yep. say, you could look for like a function containing a return type of blah. Um, and you could syntax highlight that. And then we can use the same engine for matching things like that to, for um, recording function calls and, and definitions yep. uh, for code navigation. And we call it, we just called it tree queries. Um, and cool. that something, when we built that, it was like, it finally became like, you know, if anyone wanted to do syntax highlighting with TreeSitter, it would be like a more like a one-line thing now that there was that uh, system. And mm-hmm. people could use the same tree queries, you know, even if they were um, using TreeSitter from different application languages, like NeoVim was like a C code base. And then GitHub, we had like a Go slash Rust slash C code base. Um, and... But we could all use these same um, queries to, to find the patterns in the trees. And once that b- sort of layer was like moved down into the tree sitter library, then NeoVim could really easily do highlighting. Um, and people made plugins for other text editors to do highlighting. And um, yeah, just um, I think that a lot, of, a lot of people started using that, which was really cool to see. Yeah, that's awesome. I think the the code navigation application is is particularly interesting because obviously you know source graph has its own code navigation implementation, yeah. but it's it's kind of interesting to think about like the different technical approaches uh, that you know we've taken versus uh, what GitHub uh, has taken. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. It's really it's interesting. Like, uh, GitHub has like taken a pretty. It's definitely a difficult path, like trying to kind of build your own code analysis pipeline that's not feeding off of um, co- existing compilers and stuff to, to do the code analysis. And yeah, um, yeah it's tough. It's, GitHub has this... Um, it's like for GitHub, there's just sort of different... I think um, what you're doing at Sourcegraph makes... It's almost like it's very easy to see why that approach makes a lot of sense. And for GitHub, has this like interesting... Different value of different features where like the being able to do something ecosystem wide is like almost the only thing or not the only thing that matters, but it's like if a feature isn't ecosystem wide, it's like yep. not that it's not going to hit that strongly on, on GitHub compared 
to where like source graph, if you've got your company's code base and you're trying to search that, um, it's, you, you're fully capable of setting up a little compiler CI pipeline where you run uh, your own static analysis on your, on your code base, um, and all of your, your own dependencies and stuff. Right. Cause, cause GitHub is starting from this point of view where like whatever code navigation they provide, they want it to work across, uh, you know, as many languages as they support as possible and regardless of whatever, like, build configuration you encounter. I think that that's a lot of the, like, trickiness of this problem. It's, like, different languages and different build systems. And so the yeah. treeset approach is nice because it's sort of this, like... I mean, it's not, it's not like, language agnostic to the point where, like, one grammar works for all languages. You have language-specific grammars, but yeah. it is, like, one kind of uh, parser generator... And then you're not like fully compiling each language and you're, and you're not trying to be build system aware. You're, you're, it's almost like you get 80% of the way there in terms of accuracy with, uh, hopefully like the set of heuristics that reduce to, um, patterns, right? Like, like you were saying in the, in the AST for like what looks like a definition or what looks like a valid reference for a given definition. Yeah. That's the goal of the team. And, and we, um, I think it'll always be like a, a more, a, a lower fidelity um, accuracy than what the compiler will, um, will give you. But um, yeah, it's like sort of trying to operate within this constraint of um, being able to run on every random repo in a given language that exists instead of having to like have the repo conform to certain um, conventions. Yeah. Makes sense. Cool. Well, um, I want to get to Zed because, like, that's the thing that you're working on yeah. um, now. So, and it looks like, you know, from from the way you've described your entire uh, career as a programmer, it feels like everything has kind of like built up to uh, to this moment in terms of you know, like your the way you got into it, you know, through like collaborating and, and communicating. You're always thinking through workflows, and you have such a deep appreciation for. Um, you know, editors and, and dev tools in terms of like the impact they have on, on the way people work. So what, what is kind of the backstory of, of Zed and, and what is Zed? Like, why, why are you building it and what's it intended to do? Yeah. So Zed is, um, like I said, um, we're founded by, by, um, Nathan and myself and Antonio from the Adam team. And we're like at the, from the 10,000 foot level, like we just want to build the text editor of our dreams that we've kind of built up this dream set of features and qualities over from working on text editors and kind of programming tools for a while. But it kind of took us, it, it took us a while, but you know, um, working on Adam, we were very much like, um, we started with a hackable text editor that wasn't very polished or good in most other ways, but besides being the most sort of hackable that it could possibly be. And then we tried to evolve it to become fast and powerful incrementally after shipping it and having all these locked in APIs that we had to support. Um, and so we learned from that just so much about how we wish the application worked in terms of like how, what type of, UI framework we even wanted, um, and what the constraints were of using the DOM or, um, yeah, using the, using web technologies to render yes. the UI. 
And Think about like performance issues uh, mainly, or are there other like considerations there? A lot of it is performance. Like we we really um, with Zed, it's kind of like two things. We um, we want to take a lot of what we learned about the different ways people collaborate um, on on code together. After having, um, we've all kind of had a mixture of experience from doing these really fine collaboration of pair programming, also doing this really asynchronous workflow of like pull requests and code review. And mm. then this kind of third thing where it's like many people, one branch handoffs, um, where it's yeah. like a, a mix of the two and, and to try to build, um, now that we know about kind of some of the technologies that are needed to collaboratively code, you know, we, we built this um, collaborative coding plugin to Adam. It was called Teletype that used um, where Nathan and Antonio did this huge research, deep dive into CRDTs, um, commutative yeah. replicated data types um, and, and how, what the most efficient kind of latest, greatest, Flavor those are for listeners. The, uh, my understanding is those are like the data structure or algorithm for doing kind of like live updating sort of um, conflict resolution, like in Google Docs when you when there's two people typing and sometimes they overlap. Uh, I don't know if they actually use CRDTs in Google Docs, but this is a uh, solution for that problem, right? Right. Yeah. It's it's one of the it and operational transform are like the right. two kind of approaches. And CRDTs are require less central coordination than operational transform. And there's been all this work in kind of recent times to make them like efficient enough to use in um, kind of all the time in an editor. Yep. And um, so, yeah, after GitHub, Antonio uh, went and worked out of this company called Ditto where that was all about like um, data replication and kind of, learn even more deep knowledge about CRDTs. And so we're, we're trying to take that, take what we learned there and also take what we learned about um, building just a fast text editor. It was something we all kind of became passionate about when working on Adam was wanting to, to make a, an editor that is just responsive all the time and just feels like it's never in your way to use. Um, and, to, and to build an editor that sort of lets you, um, collaborate on code in a way that we have have not yet been able to do um that facilitates the i mean so the basic idea is um so there's some common features that like exist now and in, in other tools but like i, w- I want to come in in the morning of when i com- come to work and, and mm-hmm. not necessarily open up um slack or github but open up my editor and see who's there and also see what conversation has taken place um, and then be able to look through that conversation and see what, where in the code it applies to kind of, mm. you know, click on somebody, what something somebody said and, and be there in the code at that moment that they said that at that time. And also see where that code is now, how it's evolved since then. Huh. Um, and, you know, be able to myself at like on the other flip side, like at the end of my day, when I'm handing off to my, to Antonio, uh, you know, rather than like going over to Slack and typing this long thing and like pasting like backtick <laughs> code snippets in Slack, um, I, I want to like click on some code or like go to some code that I'm talking about and just start talking and like that 
association between this code at that moment in time and what I'm saying to be captured um, in the tool or be able to click on a compiler error and start talking about that. And it's like it's like you're creating this like tour of some recently written code and being yeah. able to link to like dynamically into like specific snippets. Is that kind of the idea? It's, yeah, it's linked back and forth and in a way that's sort of useful in a real time situation where, you know, if we're there together, we just be, instead yeah. of typing in Slack about the code, we're typing in the code editor and we're also simultaneously making edit code changes. Um, but also when we're, you know, um, when the code for conversations that happen, um, like at separate points in time, I want to be able to, um, like right now, if I want to sort of find out about the history of a certain piece of code, I guess what I would do is, um, go to GitHub and go, there's all these closed pull requests that now have discussion in them about that code at different points in time, but it's hard. Like I would go to the pull request and search for like certain like words that would might come up in the discussion. Um, but it's not, I can't just like go to that file and say, tell me the discussions that relate to this. You know, they're different. The right today, like comments are on diffs that are committed and pushed. They're not on like just any code and they're not. And so uh, kind of what we envision is just more fluid collaborative environment where we can we can code together we can both be making edits to the code together when we are both around but we can also diverge and do our own thing and like just pull each other in when when needed you know it doesn't have to be this very like intense pair programming situation but it's but it's a more lightweight pulling in of somebody it's not like hey can you zoom and screen share um or like, can you fire up this tool? It's just like they're there, always there. And we, and I'm saying like, it's we're, one way that we talk about it is like we're kind of trying to recreate the vibe of like a pod of people sitting next to each other, just sort of mm. casually going over to each other, forming groups ad hoc, and then splitting and stuff. It's like um, that mind meld feeling. Yeah, when you're like hacking with a, a group of like close knit people. Yeah, but but we're, we're trying to do that for remote. Yes. Um, right. Right. Even if you're like in a different time zone, that person's asleep. Right. You want the context information transfer to be as smooth as possible. Yeah. And then also to make all that collaboration that happens in that close knit setting hmm. discoverable in the future, anytime. It's almost like you wouldn't hmm. have to do comments in your code. It would just be so easy to find comments when in code that they could just be comments in this tool. You know, like. I yeah. could be looking at some code and be like, why is this like this? And then I don't have to go do a lot of work to fake dig up the conversation that is about that code. It's just, it's connected to yeah. it in the tool is, is our vision. It sounds like there's a lot of overlap, at least on like a feature basis with various other things, you know, like when you're hearing you describe it, you know, one thing that comes to mind is like, you know, pair programming tools like VS Code Live Share, like that, that allows you to, you know, get into the same uh, editor and, and see someone else's cursor move around. Um, or like CodeStream, which was this other, you know, startup that we had in the podcast last season, which was all about like having discussions inside your editor. Uh, code spaces also, maybe there's like a, a web, um, component to this. And the other thing that came to mind was like, um, 
There's a, a VS Code extension called Code Tour um, that allows you to build these uh, like guided tours of code bases. Sourcegraph also has a similar feature. We call them search notebooks, where you, it's like Markdown interspersed with code snippets and, and search queries. But my sense is that you're not really building this up as like a sum of the features. What you're really after is kind of this like overall like end-to-end solution that captures a certain mode of working that uh, you've kind of you're uniquely well positioned to have insight into because of like the, the way that the three of you built uh, Adam in, in the early days and in, in the way that you've been accustomed to, to working over the course of your career, this like kind of combination async remote, but highly collaborative, highly communicative setting. sounds like you're trying to bring that feeling to like every developer. Is that? Yeah, that, that is, that's exactly what we're trying to do. We kind of, it's like, the way I kind of think about the like space of tools that kind of touch on this, that like you mentioned, is like it's almost like when before before there was GitHub, it's like you might you know if someone said like oh we're building a new um, thing and it's like you host your Git repos there, it's like mm-hmm. you you could kind of be like oh is that it's kind of like SourceForge or like is there isn't that already that <laughs> um, yeah right <laughs> and it's like. <laughs> There was, but like it turned out that that idea of like working together on code uh, just was really big and deep and like yeah. influ- and like needed. And there would ended up being all these things that came off of it. And it ended and it was like such a big change to software development to have something like GitHub that it was like it just took took some real creativity and a lot of people trying different angles on it to, to propose a workflow that in this huge design space of collaboration modes that could exist that like kind of clicked with people. And that's what we, that's what I want to do is, is kind of in this huge design space of like taking all this code collaboration into the real time realm. Fine. Yeah. Um, kind of execute this vision that we three have that we think will kind of will click for us um, as a as a team and will click click for other people who are searching for a more uh, productive way to work together. Yeah, I mean, like you said, GitHub was not the first uh, collaborative code host. Before that, there was SourceForge, and then there was Google Code, which right. I remember you know using back in the day. But then, like those were so. They're just very different because GitHub came along and it was like uh, such an awesome bundling of, uh, uh, I think, multiple really well-built applications. Like you had, you had a really good issue tracker um, that had like good, like well-polished features. Like you paste an image in there and it automatically, you know, turned that into Markdown. That was awesome. You had uh, a good, you know, code review tool. Uh, it worked well with Git, which then was kind of this up and coming new uh, version control system. And so just like combination of that, you threw all those together and became almost something like something new, like a, a place where developers wanted to go to to present their code to others and also find other people's code. And so now you want to do that for the editor. Uh, I guess my question is like, how close are you to uh cracking that uh nut like how how many more months uh do the rest of us have to wait before we get to try what you all have been working on that's a great question and we we haven't totally figured out um 
how long it's going to take us yet. We're sort of focused on right now. We we have a working editor. I I wish I. I mean, what we're um, tech wise, we 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 have an editor that we're building all in Rust, and we're um, have a custom UI framework that that Nathan built a lot of that is about doing media mode rendering um, on the GPU using using the graphics card for everything. Wow. And um, that sounds intense. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, and um, and then we have the CRDT based editor uh, where it's sort of you're always the cool thing about crdts is they actually enable other features too even when you're not collaborating like undo um this mm-hmm. branched undo thing sort of falls out naturally not branched but like the ability to undo anything even if you didn't necessarily undo everything after that um and yep. similarly like redo something even even if you made a change after you undid. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so that's... Like, <laughs> I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> I feel like every developer... Yeah. Yeah, like, yeah, better not... Go. Like, you undo, undo, better not type anything. Otherwise, you won't be able to redo. Um, so, like... <laughs> so, we ha- so, we sort of have... We have got that, this, this really fast um, editor that is based on... It's sort of always a CRDT, and so you're kind of at any time ready to start collaborating... Um, and we have tree sitter integrated. So it's, the, you know, right, right now we're just using it for syntax highlighting and code folding, but we'll, we'll kind of be prepared to, um, just build nice, subtly syntax aware variants of every, any, any feature that we want to build. Mm. And, um, we have sort of a basic collaboration, um, system going where we have a, um, a server that's it's also written in Rust and it's kind of fully integrated with our editor client. It's kind of one right now. It's like a mono repo, and they, um, you know, they share code, and so we have this fast ability to collaboratively edit documents. But um, there's a lot of stuff you need to build to make a text editor actually useful to people. Stuff that's just very pretty basic, like. Mm-hmm you know, um, a, a tree view of your, uh, your project and, <laughs> um, yeah. like, just, you know, all kinds of things, spell check, um, markdown preview, <laughs> uh, language yeah, server like- integration is a big one. You know, we, we want to, yes, we want to ship. Our first ship is going to be, um, we want to nail the experience of editing rust in Z mm. first, just because we use rust every day. And Rust has an amazing language server that has been built, Rust Analyzer. And uh, we kind of understand the way that people work when writing Rust, which is often make a change, a hundred compiler errors occur, and then you burn them, you go one by one and fix them all. Um, And that, you know, the compiler tells you it's like kind of like compiler driven development. And we want to, we have ideas about like kind of workflows to innovations we want to do about how to make that experience of coding rust in Zed really delightful. And so that's, that's what we're kind of focused on right now. It's like, we, we've built out a lot of like the sort of what we think are the high risk pieces, like how the collaboration is going to initially work. Um, but we, we haven't built as a lot of stuff that like kind of already exists in every other, in you know, many other editors. Um, but it's just a lot of work to do. So we, we do need to like, build build all, all those basic editor features. Um, but then that, that's our plan is we're going to ship 
an amazing um, Rust editor slash IDE that's that's collaborative in this new way. First, and as far as when that's going to happen, that's tough. But I, I kind of think that next year, uh, okay, um, <clears throat> next year we'll have something out. Well, I am super intrigued, and I bet a lot of people who listen and watch this show are also super intrigued. Is there a place where people can go to subscribe to news or notifications about uh, this new editor that you're you're building? Yeah, our website is z.dev. Um, there's not a, a ton there right now, but you can. Um, or if, if not now, we're going to have a, a way to... Um, Sign up, you know, in, uh, sign up so that you want um, beta access when it comes out, and to get updates, uh, release notes, things like that. So it will be, we'll keep you updated. All right, cool. And I'll, I'll, I'll add you to our list so that yeah, uh, yes, you, please you'll do. Be on our insiders I, list. I would love to be uh, uh, an early user. I will give all the feedback that uh, I can, and uh, I think that goes for a lot of people listening in on this too. That'd be so. Great. Maybe we can get like a, a sign-up link for for podcast podcast listeners uh, yeah. later down the road. Cool. Well, Max, so uh, thanks so much for for taking the time to chat and share kind of your experiences and also what you're up to lately. It's been awesome having you on the show, uh, and thanks so much. Yeah, thank you so much. It was great talking to you. The Sourcecraft Podcast is a production of Sourcecraft, the universal code search engine, which gives you fast and expressive search over the world of code you care about. Sourcecraft also provides code navigation abilities, like jump to dev and references in code review, and integrates seamlessly with your code host, whether you're working in open source or on a big, hairy enterprise code base. To learn more, visit sourcecraft.com. See you next time.